A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The Constitution and its amendments are the foundation of our democracy and the center point of so many controversies in American politics. We decided to take these important amendments one by one and go back to basics. If freedom of speech and the right to bear arms are enshrined as fundamental values, we want to understand them on a deeper historical level. We put together this series on the amendments to do just that. It's 1787, Philadelphia, about 10 years after the Revolutionary War. Delegates from the first 13 states are meeting to set up the first draft of their new government. These men believed all people had unalienable rights that the government must protect. Over the next few years, James Madison drafted 12 corrective proposals to the United States Constitution in order to prohibit government power. And four years later, in 1791, the states ratified 10 of these amendments, which would later become known as the Bill of Rights. These are the implements of war and subjugation. The, last the founding fathers saw firsthand what too much governmental control can do to its people. They wanted to give people the ability to think and believe freely without persecution, thus setting the stage for the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 
Now more than ever, it is important to know and understand our rights. We as a nation cannot move forward unless we understand our past. This is Constitutional Primers. By the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Silver Spud, third highest medal in the country. It doesn't mean anything. Bob Neal died for these In medals. Charlottesville, Virginia today, a large crowd turned out for a counter-protest against the Ku Klux Klan. The America of John McCain has no need to be made great again because America was always great. So we are here with my constitutional law professor from American University, ready to talk about the First Amendment. Professor Steve Wormel, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with con law? Sure. First of all, I'm delighted to be here, and it's it's always fun to be able to talk to former students about constitutional issues. So I have a particular fondness for the First Amendment because I was a newspaper reporter for 20 years. Oh, I forgot uh, about that part of your biography. So awesome. And, including um, covering the Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal for 12 years. It's rare, I think, to find a newspaper reporter who doesn't have a special affection for the First Amendment, since it enables the media to do what they do. Uh, I've been teaching constitutional law and First Amendment and a seminar on the Supreme Court now for about 25 years since I left the, the newspaper business. Most of that time, the last 19 years or so at American University, Washington College of Law. So the First Amendment, I'm going to read the text. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So, I mean, I think it's all right there. There's no complexity contained within that no, that text, right? Nothing to argue about at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I nice thought we... talking to you. Yeah, right. That, that's the end of the primer, everybody. Join us next week. Okay. So I thought what we would do is we would sort of take each... Um, section piece by piece. And what I would like to ask you is sort of what you think the basic understanding of this amendment gets right and what you think gets lost or people get wrong. So let's start with make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So can I make an overview comment first, which yes. is, you know, we've had this debate for 200 plus years in our country about the extent to which we're supposed to read language like that solely as it was understood by the people who mm. wrote it in, in 1789 or, or approved it to make it part of the Constitution in 1791, or whether they used general terms that they understood would have different meaning, you know, in subsequent periods of time. So, so that's, you know, you have to kind of have the discussion with that debate in mind. So right. to your question, let's uh, actually, let's start with the part that nobody pays attention to anymore. And that is the Congress shall make no law. Mm. The First Amendment as originally adopted did not apply to the states. There was no free speech right protected by the United States Constitution in Kentucky. Mm. 
or any other state. It was only a limitation on the power of Congress. Congress couldn't establish a religion. Congress couldn't interfere with the freedom of religion. Congress couldn't abridge freedom of speech. Um, it was not till a hundred years later, after the adoption of the Fourteenth Amendment in 1868, and even then, another really 50 to 75 years after that, into the 1900s, that the Supreme Court started saying, well, the effect of adopting the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment gave Congress the power to regulate states in certain ways. And so the idea was that with the adoption of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court could find that those original ideas way back in the Bill of Rights actually also applied to the states now, not just to limiting Congress. Mm, maybe I should have asked this question in law school. It just seems to me like once you start making huge jumps, so, okay, now we're going to apply it to the states, not to mention just, you know, historical changes like, I don't know, the Internet. Seems like trying to do this sort of original application under the Founding Fathers and sort of the flawed world they lived in seems so crazy to me, but that's probably another podcast. Well, I mean, just quick, and not not to spend all our time on that, but but um, quickly, I mean, there there's some evidence to suggest, although it's not definitive, and and writers disagree about it, but there's some evidence to suggest that when the Fourteenth Amendment was written in 1868 the people who were saying that the states can't interfere with due process were envisioning that due process would include things like the Bill of Rights, things mm -hmm. like freedom of speech and freedom of religion and some of the other amendments. The Supreme Court didn't think that was clear immediately. So so from 1868 until the 1920s, the Supreme Court's position was, no, the, the Bill of Rights still doesn't apply to the states, even though we have the 14th Amendment. But there was a huge debate in the 1920s, 1930s, really on into the 40s and 50s in which constitutional scholars, including Supreme Court justices, went back and forth on that issue. Did, did the people who adopted the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, did they intend to make the states limited by the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment? Did they intend to say, I mean, what, what we're talking about here literally is to say, it no longer means that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. It now means Congress and all other governments in the United States, states, towns, cities, counties, shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. The Supreme Court finally went that way and said, yes, that's what the 14th Amendment did. Okay, so now we've sort of gotten our understanding under that first section thanks to the 14th Amendment and some later interpretation. So now what do you think the basic understanding of the freedom of religion is, and what do you think that gets right and gets wrong? 
So there's two religion clauses. There's the establishment clause, which says make no establishment of religion. And there's the free exercise clause, which says do not interfere with the free exercise of religion. Um, sometimes they work together. Sometimes they seem to be in conflict. But mm-hmm. going back to the history, there are those who argue that no establishment of religion simply meant that that there should be no official church in the United States. Because remember, the people that founded our country were trying to get away from the imposition of the Church of England as the official church that they were required to be part of and, and in which to worship. So some would argue that the Establishment Clause simply means we can't have an official church. If that's true then we're about a million miles away from that original meaning because mm. the Supreme Court, particularly for the last oh, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, has has read a lot more into that clause, has basically said that that clause means that all government and religion should be separate. And that's where so you get have, into the Ten Commandments on government property, the nativity prayer scenes, prayer in schools, prayer in school. um, the hot, one of the hot issues now, including I think in Kentucky, is, is starting government meetings like town council mm-hmm. meetings and so on with a prayer. As we how do at much, the Paducah City Commission. How much does the Establishment Clause mean you can't do that because it was intended to separate church and state, the Supreme Court has used the imagery of a wall of separation. Mm. I mean, that that imagery goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. He used that phrase. But the Supreme Court adopted it in the, in the, in the last century and said that the Establishment Clause was meant to build a wall of separation between church and state. The court is moving away from that and more in the kind of lowering the wall so that some amount of recognition of religion in our in our daily life in our public life is is acceptable and doesn't seem to violate the establishment clause then the second phrase um, free exercise of religion is designed to protect individuals ability to practice their religion that's been used to uphold or, uh, state laws or, or, or say that state laws have to accommodate individuals' religious beliefs. There are many cases the Supreme Court has decided involving unemployment compensation. And, you know, when somebody gets fired because their, their um, Sabbath is Saturday and their employer wants to be open on Saturday, um, how do we deal with that? Do you have to? Does state law have to accommodate the individual and not allow the employer to fire them, or does state law have to provide that individual with unemployment compensation if they get fired? Um, there's a whole range of of cases like that. The the tricky thing there is how far does it go? And 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 to to what different kinds of religions does it extend? The famous case I always remember is the prisoner who wants to practice peyote. Right. 
so the you know the Supreme Court doesn't want to be in the business of of saying, "Hey, Sarah, tell me about your religion so I can decide whether it's real or not, or mm. whether it's genuine or not." We and who can blame them, really? <laughs> right. No, nobody wants the Supreme Court making those decisions, right? But on the other hand, you 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 know, if you're going to say the free exercise clause protects your right to worship, is that Anybody who wants to worship anything at any time, in any place. And in any way. Um, or in any way, including sacrifices mm -hmm. or, you know, animal slaughter or whatever. Um, um, so there have to be some limits and some balancing, and that's what's made both of those, the, both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause really interesting, but also complicated. Okay, so next one I think I'm sure will be less complicated, which is abridging the freedom of speech. So you would think that would be easy, right? <laughs> I mean, speech is speech. We know it when we see it. We know it when we hear it. Um, you know, what else is there to say? But not so. I mean, the Supreme Court has drawn all kinds of lines and and categories and and made it extremely complicated. The things that I think people are most interested in about free speech today or, or sort of to what degree do we have to uh, accept and protect speech that may be offensive, speech that may be hateful or hurtful, um, um, to what degree do we protect all kinds of speech even when we don't like it? Um, who gets to make those kinds of decisions? Uh, and those are tough issues. I mean, the uh, you know we're we're talking not long after the the struggles in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, in which white supremacists and and Ku Klux Klan members and neo Nazis were marching to to keep a statue of Robert E. Lee in, in Virginia. Well, um, they had the right to march. They had the right to protest. They had the right to, to say what they wanted to say about the statue or about the government of Charlottesville. Um, and many people may not like that. Um, but that's the way our free speech system works. They didn't have the right to start a riot. Uh, they didn't have the right to use weapons to hurt other people. Um, but to the extent that they were speaking or that they had a permit to march, um, those those parts of their activities were protected by the First Amendment. So I have a couple questions about this. So my first question is, how do you parse the freedom of speech from the freedom to peaceably assemble? How does the court kind of handle those conversations in cases where you have sort of offensive hate groups protesting? Um, the the way the court has in, has has read the First Amendment, and I, I I don't mean to make this sound mundane, but it's actually an important point, is the court has said that the First Amendment can be a traffic cop, but not a censor. Mm. So traffic cop, meaning um, we have a right to require that you get a permit to assemble, 
Um, and we can say that you can't assemble, you know, on the busiest street in Paducah in the middle of rush hour uh, and block all the traffic in town. Um, we'll give you a permit for, you know, for the middle of the afternoon rather than the busiest time of, of day. Or we'll give you a permit for a park, but not Main Street. Mm. And, and the other aspect of the traffic cop is you got there first. You got the permit. Another group is mad that you're going to march and they want to march too. Well, they have to get a permit. And the city's got a right to say to them, you can't have a permit in the same time at the same place. Okay. And this is all under sort of assembly? It's both speech and assembly. Okay. And then, uh, I mean, to some extent, it's more speech than assembly, but, but it sort of encompasses both. Both. But so that's the traffic cop function. The censor function is different. We, I can't favor your march because I like what you're saying if I'm the government. So let's let's say you and I both show up at, at, at town hall at the same time asking for a permit for the same day in the same place. And I'm advocating for some unpopular controversial position and you're advocating for some mainstream highly popular position. And we literally walked in the door at the same moment. They can't give you the permit because they like your message better than mine. That's censorship. Mm. That's not being a traffic cop anymore. That's that's deciding what speech is favored and what speech is disfavored. And the government's not supposed to have that right. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish-gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy so an interesting conversation we've been having i think it's been happening all over sort of our culture right now so i read a really couple really interesting pieces after charlottesville that said we do actually limit speech we don't let you know there's lots of um, localities that have laws against panhandling um, which seems much less problematic than hate speech and this woman's point and i think it's one i've been thinking about a lot too is if we we can limit speech, and one of the ways we've decided we can limit speech is if it incites violence, then how is something like Nazism, which advocates a white ethno state, in which there is no there is no scenario in which you reach a white ethno state without violence, how can that not be limited under our current understanding of free speech? So the Supreme Court draws many, many, many lines when it comes to free speech. And they're not always easy to see or to understand or to follow. But among those lines, um, the Supreme Court says the advocacy part of what you're doing. If If I were to say I hate the United States, I hate anybody who's not a white Christian, I don't believe they have the right to exist in this country, uh, you know, whatever else you, you want to add to make it controversial and, and maybe even menacing sounding. Um, that's still just words. It's still just advocacy. It's the moment at which my advocacy actually triggers a riot or triggers some other illegal conduct that it loses its First Amendment protection. Mm. Well, let me give a, 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 you know, maybe this is an overblown example, but um, advocating the American Revolution would be protected speech. Fighting the American Revolution would be illegal. Mm. We wanted the founding fathers 
to be able to air their grievances against England and and advocate strongly for why we should seek independence. The Declaration of Independence should be a protected document. Um, when they started firing guns at Lexington and Concord, arguably, you know, if we were using today's standards, that would be insurrection that would be illegal. Mm. It's the, mo- it's the, the moment at which the advocacy causes the insurrection. The Supreme Court says you have to intend that to happen. You, the speaker, have to intend illegal action to take place. But see, I don't understand how that doesn't apply, because if you're a Nazi, you intend for violent action to happen to become a white ethnostate by definition. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Hmm. you're just maybe you're just mouthing off. No, I mean, I think that's interesting because the same woman I, I heard make this point who sort of was um, deep in the 4chan world, wrote a book about it, said, I think there was a substantial population of people who were engaged in this speech and in these platforms who it was curiosity, who would blow it off and they would say, well, they're just being ironic. And she said, now they can't do that. You know, And up until that point, yeah, would it have been problematic and would you have made it worse by limiting their speech? Or saying their speech was illegal because they were exploring and now that it's turned violent, they're out and they can't use that as cover anymore. But it just seems, you know, interesting once you have, I guess, you know, sort of from once you have people at Charlottesville who maybe were just advocating, but then they show up with helmets and shields like and sticks. I don't know. It's just it's interesting. And I and look, I think this well, conversation I mean, that's right on the line. I mean, yeah. I, I think that that gets about as close to this dilemma of, you know, where's the protected speech and where's the unprotected illegal action as as you can get. And I, I think mean, with it's this is also true on the other side with the anti-fascist. Right. I mean, they're sort of violent by very by their very definition. And so I think we're really in this in this really tough space with regards to freedom of speech. So what do you think people get wrong about freedom of speech? I think one of the common misunderstandings I see a lot is that people think free speech applies to sort of personal action, but it really only applies to government action. You can definitely get fired for being a Nazi, and there's no constitutional protection for that. Right. I mean, the, the, yeah, I think you said it very clearly. With The, the key touchstone there is state action, that the First Amendment is a, is a protection from the state interfering with your free speech rights, the government interfering with your free speech rights. Now that, you know, that can apply broadly from uh, uh, football coaches to to school principals, to the sheriff, to the mayor, uh, you know, to the fire chief, to the police chief, but it's still all public officials and public action. If you're, if you're a private employer, says, I don't want Nazis working in my uh, uh, place of business. Uh, they pretty much have a right to to fire you um, for, for that reason. Uh, I mean, there's some employment discrimination laws that might have an impact, but generally they have much more discretion. So I think that's one thing people get wrong. I think many people get speech that is offensive, either isn't or shouldn't be protected. And that goes to the heart of one of the the difficulties the Supreme Court faces in interpreting the First Amendment, which is whose standard of of what's offensive 
are we applying right if you mm-hmm. if you if you pick ten examples and ask the the people who listen to your podcast you know which of these ten examples do you think is offensive, you'd come out with ten different opinions well, then how do we have free speech if each of ten people gets to ban the speech that they don't like right right. Well, and that's what's an interesting conversation. Again, it's not government action, but it's important when you talk about the actions that Facebook or Twitter or these sort of message boards take to limit the speech, because there was a the head of one of them, and I can't remember which one it was, said like, yeah, I'm doing something. It is a problem. We need to talk about it because right now we all agree I should do something. But what if next time I decide to do something to kick these people off, we don't all agree? Right. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. And so, I mean, the, the the image that the Supreme Court has long used, and it's hard for people to accept this sometimes, maybe often, but the Supreme Court's image is what's called the marketplace of ideas, that um, you get to say what you want to say, and if I don't like it or I don't agree with it or I'm offended by it, I get to say what I want to say. Mm-hmm. And people listen to both of us or 10 of us or 100 of us saying different things and make their own judgments about what they agree with and don't agree with and what's right and what's wrong. And that's the system of free speech, that, that we're, we're smart enough, we're mature enough, we're thick-skinned enough to be able to sort all this out through speech rather than through giving the government the power to mm. tell us what we can and can't say. That is a fundamentally hopeful approach. It, at times it seems very naive, um, <laughs> but, but yes, it is a very optimistic approach. It's a very democratic approach. Right. So we sort of lumped in our discussion with the right of to peacefully assemble. What do you think people get wrong about that before we move on to press? Um, I mean, the right to assemble doesn't really come up that often Mm -hmm. in, in Supreme Court cases and in First Amendment cases. It's usually secondary to, to other things. Suppose the main focus would be there is no absolute right to assemble anytime you want, anywhere you want. Mm -hmm. Um, government can always regulate public safety. It's not, and and this is where assembly sort of goes back to the free speech issue. Government is not supposed to be picking and choosing among different causes or or different content. Um, You know, government is supposed to be neutral, uh, you know, with, with legitimate public safety concerns. So you have a right to march, you have a right to demonstrate you don't have a right to do so lawlessly. Um, and, and I think people kind of lose sight of that. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. All right, so the next one, sort of the, I would say the most popular of the First Amendment right now, Freedom of the press, which, yeah, I mean, I think it's having its moment right now. So it's really tricky, though. The press is certainly under attack, not just by the president, but but by the president's followers and and many in government um, who who uh, believe the press is irresponsible and gets things wrong and is biased and is anti-Trump, and so he's been on this whole fake news campaign to to try to discredit the press. Well, and Um, even beyond that with the Hulk Hogan case and sort of some legal battles as well, I'd say. So there are all kinds of of legal issues facing the press. The interesting thing, and and this is is the tricky part, 
is that most of those cases get decided under the free speech clause, not under the press mm. clause. Um, what the Supreme Court has sort of said is the press isn't special. The Supreme Court has more or less said, yeah, we know it's there, that clause, but it doesn't really mean much different than what the free speech clause Interesting. means. We don't think it confers special privilege on the press. The, the there's a there's a, one school of of kind of constitutional thinking that says the only reason press was included separately was to make sure it was understood that it meant the written word, not just the spoken word. Oh. Um, and the court hasn't said that quite that specifically or or starkly, but basically the press clause doesn't mean a whole lot that's separate from the speech clause. Now. Having said that, that doesn't mean that there aren't rights that the press enjoys that are protected by the speech clause. I mean, the court um, will frequently treat the media as the eyes and ears of the public. That's kind of the the imagery, if you will. Um, when there's a controversial trial in a courtroom that only has room to seat 50 people in the courtroom, uh, the court will say that trial is public. There's a constitutional right for that trial to be open to the public, but we're going to give the seats to the press because they're going to represent the interests of the public or, or things like that. I mean, the press can, you know, go uh, uh, tour a prison um, not because it's special, but because it's representing the interests of the public. Mm. There are many current controversies um, involving the press, the, the Hulk Hogan uh, videotapes, um, which, which you know, led to a, a huge um, damage award um, against Gawker. Um, the, um, I mean, just just in the time in which we're talking, the federal judge in New York threw out a, a, a libel suit against the New York Times by Sarah Palin. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Um, basically saying that she's a public figure and, and has a much higher um, level of proof in order to be able to win damages from the, the New York Times. But again, these principles all apply in non-press contexts as well. Um, there are some important First Amendment principles in there. I mean, when when the president keeps saying that um, he would like to change libel laws so that it's easier to sue the press when they hurt somebody's reputation, um, for example, those libel laws are a mixture of state law and the First Amendment. To the extent that the First Amendment makes it harder to sue the media uh, because it encourages the media to comment on public figures, public issues, um, Trump doesn't have the power to change that. He'd have to get a he'd have to get a constitutional amendment. You'd have to amend the First Amendment, mm. essentially. Because that is something in which we're very different the the sort of high 
standard applied to public figures was a big famous case in New York Times v. Sullivan, which I actually remember from my con law class um, from the 60s. It's, you know, it's very different. Like Britain has a very different approach than we do. Um, we we are uh, not uh, maybe not alone, but pretty unique um, in in our approach. Our approach is that because we believe in what the court called free and open and robust debate, um, people who are in the public eye, whether it's public officials or movie stars, singers, sports figures who are public figures, um, uh, commenting about them, discussing their lives is fair game. And uh, the standard to be able to sue the media for saying something wrong about a public figure that damaged their reputation is a is a very high standard. You have to show that the media was actually reckless, not just negligent, but but pretty much intentionally reckless. So in the Sarah Palin case, for example, the, the New York Times made a mistake. The New York Times said that uh, it was actually a column that said that um, Sarah Palin's website had put a like a shooting target, a bullseye type target on Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and that that contributed to her being shot uh, in Arizona. Uh, well, it wasn't Sarah Palin's site that had the bullseye. Sarah Palin's site had a map mm-hmm. identifying certain Congress members, but it didn't have the kind of target or bullseye that the New York Times said. The New York Times quickly corrected it. It was a mistake. Was it harmful to Sarah Palin? I, you know, I guess we could debate that. Would I mean? She certainly was offended by it, but did it actually hurt her reputation? I, I doubt it. Well, and it's like they had to like actively know they were lying and try to go, and they were trying to do it to harm her reputation, which I think is always right. a hurdle. And that's so interesting um, in the Hulk Hogan case is that their basic entire argument was there's Hulk Hogan, and then there's Terry. I can't even remember his real like his real name, and they were really basically arguing that they're two completely different people. And yeah, a sex tape doesn't harm Hulk Hogan, but it was very damaging to the real guy. It's I mean the testimony when he's speaking about himself as two in two different people is so bananas. And the judge in that case, right, it's it, like an out of body experience. It really, really was. It was so weird, and th- it, I think it created some really bad case law. But I think there could be some interesting future discussion of this because I think you do have um, media entities at this point in time. I mean, I don't know if media is a generous use of the term, more like bots who go out and perpetuate false stories. You know, to damage people. I mean, I think that if ever there was a standard in which somebody meets this, these these fake news sites, real fake news sites, not the New York Times, you know, like right now there's a push where they're retweeting that Obama was playing golf during Katrina, which is not only false, um, but, you know, but they're actively pushing false narratives to damage. I mean, I feel like they were almost invented to test that rule. I think that's right. And, and that's, I mean, there are, there are strong reasons why we want the first amendment to protect the ability of the media to do their jobs and to gather news. And, and, and in all this controversy uh, about false news and, 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 you know, fake media and all that, 
I mean, I think what what's forgotten, what people lose sight of is the main job of the traditional media, the main job of daily newspapers and and TV stations, national network and local TV stations is to provide you information. And if I don't want to make this a diatribe about our president, but if our president were to succeed, there would be no independent place to get accurate information. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to what we were talking about before. The whole idea of a marketplace of ideas turns on access to information. It turns on informed citizens being able to get information and make intelligent judgments. So the the effort to discredit the media is dangerous in a number of ways, but one of them is that we cease to have um, businesses in this country whose job is to try to independently provide information to the people of the United States. You know, first of all, you just sort of want to be like, what's the alternative? Do you want to, it to be, if you think Trump is not being treated fairly, is the alternative that we only depend on him and he would need to tell us if he's done anything wrong and what the repercussions of that? Like, does that sound like a good scenario for you in which we depend on government officials to always tell us the truth and make sure and tell us exactly what's happening and the problems they foresee with their decisions? Like, I don't, that doesn't seem like a workable solution. And I think what else we're always sort of problematic about people's concerns for the press, and I think what sort of underplays all this is, you know, I was watching the documentary about the Hulk Hogan case, Do Not Speak on Netflix, it's really great. And they said, you know, the press's job is just just ask question, not give answers. And I think as our world gets more complex, that is that is people's real frustration with the press. You know, like they sort of just want Walter Cronkite to tell them how to feel. And that's not the press environment we're in anymore. And I think that they really want the press to try to fix it or they just feel frustrated with like, all you do is show up and tell me the problems. You know what I mean? And I think right. that's like an emotional a fair emotional reaction, but you know, we still that doesn't you just because we have more questions and they're harder to answer doesn't mean we need to stop asking them. Well, and then the internet makes all of that even more mm-hmm. complex. I mean, do do all the rules that we've had for newspapers and television and and other forms of communication do they apply the same way to the internet? Is it different now that that uh, you know you can post something on the internet and have a million people see it, whether it's true, false, made up, right, wrong, harmful, not harmful, sort of doesn't matter. How do we figure out rules that could deal with that universe and when we're only just beginning, I think. As you wrap up your First Amendment classes, what do you always hope your students leave understanding and what could you tell us that you hope we take away from this conversation on the First Amendment? I believe and, and hope that my students will understand that the First Amendment is about um, a, a democratic society that is... Um, accepting of many different points of view, whether that's freedom of religion or freedom of speech. The system that we have built and that our First Amendment uh, hopefully preserves in 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 marble, in stone, um, is one that turns on, on information and, and beliefs and expression, and that we understand 
that we're a strong enough society to welcome different voices and different points of view and deal with it with, without turning to suppression or, or, or censorship. Um, there's a wonderful line from a Supreme Court opinion written by uh, Justice John Harlan that says that the the fact that the air may at times be filled with cacophony is a strength, not a weakness. Mm. The, the idea that we as a society can hear lots of different things, some of which we like, some of which we hate, but that we can handle that is a sign of our strength. It's not a sign of our inability to figure out what to suppress. It's a sign of our understanding that that we can handle it, that we can deal with it, that we can accept different points of view. So that, that would be my parting message. Oh, that's a beautiful parting message. And this is the same Justice Harlan that said the Constitution is colorblind? No, this was his, his grandson or grandnephew oh, or something. Oh, interesting. Yes, I think that is a perfect... Perfect endpoint. Thank you so, so much for coming on and helping us get a basic understanding of the First Amendment. A very complex couple of sentences, but wildly important to our country. My great pleasure. Thank you. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Special thanks to Elise Knapp for narrating these special intros and to Dylan Garvin and Studio D podcast production for music and sound design. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 